We are going to be in Romans 16 this morning, and uh, we're about to finish up uh, our time in the book of Romans. A couple of weeks from now, we're going to begin a new sermon series starting Easter Sunday. Uh, I'm calling this Aftershock, and we're going to to be looking at is, surprise, surprise, we're going to be looking at the resurrection on Easter Sunday uh, from Luke 24, and then we're going to make our way through the end of the book of Luke and and on into the book of Acts, which those books are are twin books with one another, both written by uh, Luke, this companion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, And so we're going to make our way through the first chapter or two of the book of Acts. And what we're going to be looking at during our time together uh, in the coming weeks is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its effects in the lives of those who came to know him and who have even today come to know him and trust Him as Lord and Savior. What, what purpose does the resurrection have in our lives? Is it just something that we believe in, or does it have a transformative effect on us? So that'll be coming up here in a couple of weeks. Be sure to invite someone to join you for Easter Sunday, if you would. But today we're going to talk about, from Romans 16, a gospel-centered community. This whole series of living sacrifices has been about... Uh, talking through the effects of the gospel in our lives. That the gospel is not just something that we receive, it is something that we live out. Uh, There there are things that the gospel calls us into that we cannot do apart from the gospel and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And some of those things are these one another commands that are all sprinkled throughout these chapters. Uh, They are found various places in the New Testament, but this is a high concentration here in these last five chapters of the book of Romans, these one another commands. It began there in verse 5 of chapter 12 when we learned that because of the gospel, we are members of one another. Not only have we been rescued by Christ, but we have been brought into the fellowship of faith known as his church, which is not a building, it's, it's a body of believers that we come together in light of the gospel, we become members of one another. And this produces several different things, as you'll see. First of all, we learn to love one another. And I say learn to because most of us aren't very good at it. In fact, we need a lot of practice. That's why he's given us the church where we can learn to love one another with a, with a self-sacrificing love, not a self-centered love uh, like our culture teaches us, but to love one another. And we talked about in chapter 13 that, that debt of love that we owe to one another. It's a debt that can never be paid, but it's so enjoyable to make payments on it. And so we, give, we love one another in a self-sacrificing way. We give love to one another. We serve one another. And we enjoy doing so because of the gospel. Romans 12.10, we honor one another. In fact, it says to even outdo one another. You want to have a competition? Outdo one another in showing honor. In honoring one another above yourselves. Then we talked about what it means for us to live in harmony with one another, which is a command that's given twice. And it's this beautiful musical picture. Uh, you know, like this morning, man, didn't Grant and Julie do a wonderful job this morning? Uh, all the rest of their team left them high and dry, but they stepped up this morning and beautiful harmonies came forth. But we also know, music lovers in the room, don't we know when the harmonies are off a little bit? I mean, it doesn't take much. Just like half a note off, and you're like, oh, man, it's nails on a chalkboard. And the Apostle Paul uses that imagery to talk about how 
with our various gifts, we come together and we sing a song of praise to the Lord in the way that we love and serve and walk with one another in this life. Romans 14, we talked about not passing judgment on one another. That there are some things that are primary. There are primary things like the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that it's only through faith in Him that we can be saved. That a holy God sent Him into this sin-soaked world to rescue us, and He did so by pouring out His blood at the cross. And it's through faith and repentance that we can come to know Him and have life, eternal, everlasting life in Him. Those are primary things. But there's a lot of secondary stuff out there. There are a lot of things that, that we can uh, use as divisive tools that don't need to be dividing us. We can get divided over the types of movies we should watch or the types of music we should listen to or how we should dress or what we should eat or should we participate in certain holidays. The list goes on and on and on. But we learned and talked about not to pass judgment on one another in terms of secondary issues. Keep the main thing the main thing. And then, as we will today, we've talked about welcoming and greeting one another. And that's based in the way Christ has welcomed us. That He has welcomed us into His kingdom with a reckless abandon. The doors have been flung wide by His sacrifice at the cross. There is no hindrance in coming to the living God except for our sin. And that has been washed away by His blood. So it's through faith in Him and repentance of our sin that we come into this place where we're welcomed, where we are greeted, where we are loved, where we are honored, where we are able to live in harmony and all these things because of the gospel. Then we come to the end of the book of Romans, and we find that most of chapter 16 is a list of names. And we're a little disappointed. Now, you may not be disappointed, but I'm a little disappointed. Because it's like you've come to this mountaintop experience, not just of, of seeing the first 11 chapters of this beautiful portrayal of the gospel, but then for these last five chapters, we've been talking so much about how it works out in our lives and what we do with the gospel and how we can love one another and all the things that we've been talking about that come as a result of this gospel. And then we come to the last chapter, and it's like the credit roll at the movies. And most of us, when the credits start to roll, now, now my kids do something weird. My kids like to go down when the credit roll starts, and they, they dance in the front. I, they've done this since they were real little. I've never seen anybody else do this, but my three kids, when the credit roll starts, they run down to the front of the cinema, and they have a dance party. <laughs> Maybe that would make the credits better for us. I don't know, but it's very entertaining for me as their father. But most of us, when the credits roll, what do we do? We're up and out, man. We're beating the crowd out of the room, right? And that, and that would be our temptation here with Romans 16. It's like we come to this list of names and we go, okay, you know, if we were reading through this in our Bible reading plan, we come to chapter 16 in Romans and we just skim through and move on to 1 Corinthians, right? But there's something here for us. Church, all Scripture is God-breathed. From the end of the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 to the amen at the end of Revelation, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching us, for correcting us, for rebuking us, and for training us in righteousness that we might be fully equipped for everything God wants us to be and to do. 
So without Romans 16, we would be a little less equipped. And I hope you'll see that before we finish this morning. So what about this parade of names here? Kent Hughes said so well, the parade of names in this closing chapter of Romans repeatedly affirms Paul's affection for his Christian brothers and sisters in Rome. How Paul loved the church. It is imperative, this is necessary, that we remember that people are important. Somehow we can forget that, that people matter. The absence of agape love in the typical church should burden our hearts. We must reach out in love to those around us. And so once again, right here in chapter 16, Paul is setting before us an example of how to love one another. Here's what I want you to do, because it would be very easy for us to walk through this chapter, to walk through this message, and, and walk away without making any application of it in our own lives. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you, if you were to make a list like this, who would be on your list? Who would you look at as... as gifts that God has put in your life. I'm talking about those friends that stick closer than a brother, those who have walked through the valley of the shadow of death with you, those who have suffered with you and cried with you, those who've been there in the best of times and the worst of times. Who are those co-laborers in the ministry? Who are those that maybe they're not blood kin, but they are definitely kinsmen and kinswomen? Is that even a word? It is now. They are definitely, definitely kin to you because of your unity in Christ. Who would make your list? If you were sending out thank you notes today, which is what I believe Paul is doing here, he is giving thanks for at least 26 different individuals here by name, not to mention the ones that he mentions alongside of them. He is giving thanks to God for them. Who would make your list? I hope right now names and faces are beginning to emerge in your mind because that's how we're going to make application of this today is giving thanks for the gift of people. Giving thanks for those that God has placed in our lives. And hopefully learning to love them a little better than we have before. So, we're going to jump into the list. We're going to begin with the first one here. Uh, we're going to begin and end with a little bit of controversy this morning, if that's all right. The first controversial person that we meet here is a lady named Phoebe. And she is described as a female deacon. Now, all the hardcore Southern Baptists went, <gasps> What? What did you say? A female deacon, we don't do that. Look at verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea. Now that's what the English Standard Version says, but if you look, there's a footnote there next to the word servant. If you go down to the footnotes, you should find a footnote that says that that word servant could also be translated deacon, or in this case, deaconess. And it's not just a hospital in Evansville. This was, this was actually a role, I believe, in the early church that there were women who were serving in this capacity of deacons. Now, this word could just, could just mean servant, but it's interesting 
that he says of her that she's a servant of this particular church at Sincrea, which was the seaport of uh, the church at Corinth. The, the city of Corinth had a seaport known as Sincrea, and she was a servant or a, a deacon of this particular church. And we believe that she was the one that Paul entrusted with this letter the letter to the Romans that he wrote from Corinth to Rome, that she was the one that was entrusted with this precious letter to take it to Rome, which was many hundreds of miles to the west. We know from last week that Paul was headed east to Jerusalem. He had a special offering that had been collected, a love offering for the saints at Jerusalem. So Paul couldn't take the letter himself. He sends Phoebe with this precious letter. She is given precious cargo. I mean, think about this, church. Where would we be today if the letter at Rome never made it to Rome? How much would we be lacking in our understanding of the gospel without the letter to the Romans? I mean, this is a powerful book of the Bible. It's so crucial. Now, they're, they're all crucial. Don't misunderstand me. But the book of Romans is top-shelf stuff. And so she was entrusted with this precious letter to take it. So this word servant could also be translated deacon or, or deaconess. And I think that's exactly how we should be understanding her role here, that she had a particular role uh, that she was living out. He also refers to her as a patron, one who had devoted her life to giving to others. She was apparently had, had some wealth behind her because she was able to travel, which was not an inexpensive thing in those days. She was able to travel. Maybe she was even going to Rome on some kind of a business venture. We don't know exactly. Um, but she was able to support the needs of the ministry there in Sincrea and in Corinth. And I believe that she was fulfilling the biblical role of a deacon. And so let's think about this for a moment because I know we think, well, we don't have women deacons in our church. And before anybody gets up in arms and sends me a bunch of emails, we are not tackling this at this point in our history. Uh, there's a reason for that. I think we have to get things in order before we could even begin down that road, and that may never be what God has for us. But I would make this point today before we move on. When a, when a biblical eldership is in place, there is no biblical reason that women could not serve as deacons. And see, church, that's what we've been trying to do for the last few years as we've moved into this time of having elders. And really what we see in the Scriptures is that God has sought to organize and structure the church in, the very, in a very similar to, way to how He has structured the home. By the way, God did structure the home. Go back to the first couple of chapters in Genesis. It was the very first institution on earth that a man would leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two would become one flesh. That's a home, and they would bring up godly children that would love the Lord and walk in His ways. This is called a home. And the design of God for the home was that there would be a husband, that there would be a man who would be the head of that household and would love his wife with a servant leadership, would seek to honor the Lord in loving his wife with a self-sacrificing love, putting her needs before his own. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says this is a picture of Christ's love for the church, that he laid down his life for her, and that's how we husbands are called to love our 
wives. And the wife is given a role as well, which is to honor, to respect, to submit to the godly leadership of her husband. It's the proper ordering of the home the way God intended it for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. This is good. And so God takes that very institution, the first one that he created, and he brings it into a later institution known as the church where you have two roles as well. There are only two offices given to the New Testament church, the elder and the deacon. And in many ways, they mirror this idea of a husband and wife in the home. That the elders are these servant leaders in the church while these deacons are the leading servants in the church and they complement one another. And I want you to understand this morning, this has nothing to do with the difference of worth. This has nothing to do with some kind of worldly hierarchy where one is more important than the other. This has everything to do with a right ordering to where all parts benefit. This is the picture, church. When godly elders are fulfilling their biblical role, it frees up godly deacons to fulfill their biblical role. Because the Apostle Paul, who I believe was kind of a, as an apostle, a foreshadowing of the elders that would come after them, because he was fulfilling his role, Phoebe was then freed up to fulfill her role. Do you, do you see it? And if there comes a time when we are, as a church, able to walk fully in a biblical eldership, and I believe we're moving in that direction, but we're not there yet, then perhaps at some point we'll be able to have this discussion of female deacons. But for now, I just stirred you all up and we'll move on. <laughs> Send your emails to CorinthConnect at gmail.com. Cinda will respond. All right. First Peter chapter 4. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so here's the picture. Those who are called to serve as elders, use what you have been given as a good steward of God's very grace for the building up of the body and for the glorifying of the Lord. Those who've been called as deacons, do the same. Those who serve as Sunday school teachers, do the same. Those who serve in children's ministry, use your gifts to help our kids to love Jesus more. Those who invest in our teenagers, do the same. If you're going to the nursing home on Tuesdays to minister, or do the same if you're going to the jail on Thursday mornings do the same use the gifts that you've been given to build up the body here's what's happened in the church today we've thought that, that picture that I just described that was just for those who've been called to ministry professional ministry we think we think we've thought somehow we've made a distinction an unbiblical distinction between those who are called as as pastors or ministers and the rest of the church not remembering that the entire body has been called to ministry just in different ways if you were saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you have been given a spiritual gift, and some of you have been given even more than one, that are meant to be used for the upbuilding of the church and for the glorifying of God. 
we've said many times, we were not saved to sit and stew in the sanctuary. We were saved to serve others in the name of Christ, to use our gifts to bring joy to our Father by doing so. That's what I believe Phoebe was doing. Whether we consider her a deacon or not, she was fulfilling a deacon ministry as she served the Apostle Paul by taking that letter to the church at Rome, and we are the benefactors of a faithful servant. So then he begins the list. All these names that we struggle to pronounce, though again, Matt did an excellent job this morning. And what I want you to see, though, is this list of names is a beautiful, lifelike description of the Apostle Paul's love for the church, and it comes through in a familial devotion. There's a familial devotion. There's a family feel here. And I I think it's so important for us to remember that the Apostle Paul was unmarried. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he he glories in his own singleness. He praises God that he doesn't have a, a nuclear family of his own because of the way it frees him up for ministry. Because it freed him up to be a church planter and to infect the known world at that time with this gospel. He wasn't tied down with the worldly concerns of a household and a, and a wife and children. He said, I'm freed up to do for the Lord what I, I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And there are some of you in this room that have been gifted in that way. Now, our culture doesn't see it as a gift, unfortunately. But go read 1 Corinthians 7. And there are some of you in this room that have been given the gift of singleness. But none of us, listen to me, church, none of us have been given the gift of solitude. There's a difference. There is a gift of singleness, but none of us were saved to be a man on an island. None of us were saved to live out our days in a cave away from one another. We were saved for community. He drew us not just to himself by his blood poured out at the cross. He drew us into his church where we could learn to love God better, but also to love one another. This is the practice ground for us living out these one another's. How will we ever be able to love the lost out there if we can't love one another in here? We won't. We won't. And so look at this list, and I want you to see this. These folks were Paul's co-workers and his beloved faith family. Look how he commends them. He says, these are my co-laborers. These are my beloved friends. These are my kinsmen. Now, does he mean literally were they blood kin? I don't think so. I think he's saying we are family because we now have the same father. We now have God as our Father, and we are joined together in His Son, Jesus Christ. We have become the family of God. And he writes greeting to these folks, saying, You're my beloved family. And and I'm longing for the day, as we saw last week, I'm longing for the day when I can greet you in person. But for now, Phoebe and this letter are going to have to do. Welcome her as you would welcome me. I look forward to seeing you soon. We've seen this. Here in this list, we see great unity in the midst of great diversity. We see diversity in terms of race. There are Jews and Gentiles in this list. 
We see diversity in terms of, of socioeconomic class and, and political affiliation. Well, we see those who were high up in the government, and we see those who were likely servants, even slaves. We see upper class and lower class come together in the church. We see males and females. There are at least seven, possibly eight different women mentioned in this letter who are described as co-workers, co-laborers, those who stood side by side with the Apostle Paul in his ministry, and he commends them. So for those who falsely view the Apostle Paul as some kind of misogynist based on uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and other places, for those who see that, I want you to understand, he looked at many different female co-workers in the ministry and saw them stepping up. He entrusted this letter that was so crucial for the growth of the church to Phoebe. He was exalting the role of women. And in fact, I would say this, in that day, the church was on the leading edge of exalting the role of women. And we ought to still be today, church. We ought to still be on the leading edge. But rightfully seeing that within the design of God. And so Galatians chapter 3 for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what's happening here in Galatians 16. Males and females, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free men, those who were high up in society and those who were nothing in the eyes of society were coming together in the church. All the divisions that men so easily create between one another were being erased in the church. Now don't misunderstand Galatians 3. He is not saying that we ought to be a part of this craziness that's happening in our culture right now where gender is being erased. Who was the creator of gender? God. He made them male and female in His image according to His purpose that we would fulfill distinctive roles. There will be nothing that elevates us as the human race when we follow along this crazy path of destroying gender. God created us male and female according to His purposes, and we have different gifts, and we glorify Him in different ways, and yet we're both made in His image. It has nothing to do, nothing whatsoever to do with a difference in worth. It has everything to do with a difference in role. And as men and women work together as God intended and fulfill their distinctive roles, the home flourishes and the church flourishes. So if we hadn't gotten into enough controversial issues this morning, I've got one more for you. Look at verse 16. He kind of sums up this line of greeting there, and he says... Greet one another. Here's our last one another of the book. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is for us what I would call a foreign designation. We're going, whoa, hold up, dude. Now, some of you in the room are going, hey, I could get into that. 
<laughs> but for the germaphobes or for those of us that, that we like our two-and-a-half-foot bubble and anybody who gets in our two-and-a-half-foot bubble, we want to pop them before they pop us, okay? That, 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 that's the place where we go, whoa, what's this holy kiss business? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what's being said here, but just take it at face value, first of all. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And we can easily go, well, I'm okay with, with loving one another and with the, you know, living together in harmony, but I'm going to keep my bubble and ain't nobody kissing me. And if you're starting to institute that, Pastor, there's a lot of churches, I can go find another one where they don't do that weird holy kiss thing. Okay, I'll just go ahead and ease your mind. We are not instituting the holy kiss here at Corinth. I don't think that was even Paul's desire here in this letter. What he was simply doing was he was, he was recognizing the fact that for them, culturally, in the first century, a kiss of greeting was very normal. We still see this practiced in various cultures today. Now, in that particular day, it was generally men with men and women with women that they, when they greeted one another, they would kiss on the cheek. They would, they would lay a hand on, on a shoulder and they would kiss sometimes on each side as we sometimes still see demonstrated today. But it was a common greeting. It was the equivalent today of, of saying, hey, have a holy handshake. Okay, that, that's normal for us. In those days, if you had stuck your hand out, they would have looked at you like you had three heads. Go, what are you doing, dude? Uh, you remember when Jesus went into the home of a man named Simon, uh, there I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, and, and he said to Simon, hey, why was it that when I came into your home, you didn't give me a kiss? Now, there was nothing weird or sexual about that. He was just saying, you didn't greet me properly. It was the normal greeting of the day, this idea of, a, of a extending a kiss, just like we would extend a a handshake. We might say today, how about a, a holy handshake or for the germaphobes, a, a faith-filled fist bump. You can go that way if you want to, all right? So, but the idea is this. There, there ought to be for us a visual representation of the love we have for one another, even in the way that we greet one another. Now, some of you in this room have been given the spiritual gift of hugging. And you know who you are. You've been given the spiritual gift. You say, I didn't find that in the gifts list in Galatians 5. Well, it, it's there somewhere. Just keep looking for it. Because some of you have this gift, of a spiritual gift of, of hugging. And there are others of you in this room that are utterly repelled by that gift. Let's just go ahead and admit it. When the hugger comes your way, you are trying to find somebody to talk to. You are starting to shrink back into your own skin. You're, you're waiting for that bubble around you to be popped, and you're just, you're just, you really wish that they would not exercise their gift. But church, notice what Paul says here. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That word is so important. Greet one another with a holy kiss, a holy hug, a holy handshake, even if you have to, a, a faith-filled fist bump. But greet one another with, a, with an act of love that's flowing directly out of God's love for us. You say, how in the world does a hug become holy? 
It becomes holy when it's between two people who are hugging because they love Jesus. It becomes holy when it's between two people who know that they are co-laborers in the gospel. You see, I believe the Apostle Paul was saying, greet one another with a holy kiss because he couldn't wait for the day when he was finally going to make it to Rome and be able to give out some holy kisses of his own. Why? Because he loved these people. That's what it's about. There's nothing sexual here. There's nothing weird here. In fact, there's something immensely holy that happens. And, And I would say that that holiness can be extended to so many areas. Take, for instance, what happens in this corner back here every Sunday. This is not just a hospitality corner. This is a holy hospitality corner. Those of you that take time to make the breakfast casserole or to pick up the donuts or or whatever you do when you bring that, I want you to understand that what's happening in that corner is not just us getting breakfast on Sunday morning. It's an opportunity for fellowship with one another. I hear every week conversations happening back in this corner that are important. People asking for prayer. People updating on certain needs in their lives. Just good old-fashioned conversation that's not happening through an electronic device. It's a good thing. And so donuts become holy when God's people come together and share conversation with a cup of coffee and a donut. It's a holy thing. You see, how is that holy? It becomes holy not because of the elements, but because of the presence of Christ. And so we enter into holy conversations on Sunday morning, not because uh, we use these and thou's, and the only words that we can say are Jesus and God. It's not about that. In fact, we could even be doing that in vain, and it wouldn't be holy at all. But it becomes holy when the love of Christ that has been implanted in, us begins, implanted in us begins to leak out toward one another. When we begin to infect one another with love, and again, some of you in this room, that comes out through your spiritual gift of hugging, and I praise God for you. And for those of you in the room that shrink back from that, I just want to go ahead and say to you, in your shrinking back, here's a mind shift. In your shrinking back from that, And maybe it's just internal. But in your shrinking back from that, let it change matters as you begin to see that hug, not as an invasion of your space, but as an invitation to worship. That that hug that's being offered, that handshake, that fist bump, if somebody wants to start practicing the holy kiss, you better warn us in advance, but... That that invitation, that's an invitation saying, isn't Jesus good? Church, here's what it ought to be like. And if you're here for the first time this morning, I just want to say something kind of about you, but hopefully with your permission. If you're here for the first time, church, I want, I want us to know that those who come into this place for the first time, here's what they must experience in order for us to get this right. They ought to walk away from our gathering with two thoughts. And this, the first one's primary and most important. They ought to be walking away from this place saying, man, how good is this Jesus? Isn't he great? But they also ought to walk away 
as a result of number one. They ought to walk away saying, wasn't that just a beautifully loving church? And not because we're putting on a show, not because we've been trained to give the holy handshake or to say the right words or to have uh, semi-spiritual conversations, but because the love of God has so infected us and so filled us and so controls us that it ekes out of us in everything that we do. And so when we come together, man, it is a love fest in this place. It is, it is full of the Spirit that we come together and we love one another and it's shown even in the way that we shake hands, even in the way that we greet one another. Amen. And so I want to encourage us in that church. I know it sounds like a small thing. I know it sounds so small, but it is so huge when we're talking about a culture that is community deficient. We have more opportunities for relational connectedness in our culture right now than any culture has ever known in the history of the world. You can connect with people on the other side of the globe through Facebook. You can send text messages to people. You can still do email. That still exists, by the way. Email still actually works. I know some of the young people are going, what, what in the world? Emails? People still use that? Yes, email still exists and still works. And we got some other weird stuff, Snapchat and all that. I don't even know what half that stuff is, but I'm going to tell you, there's all these ways to connect, and yet we are more disconnected than we've ever been. There are more people suffering with depression related to loneliness than there's ever been in, our cult, in the history of our, of our country. There are more people on antidepressants and, 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 and going through psychological counseling related to this cocooning that's happened in our culture where we run away from relationships, where we hide from others, where rather than like in a, a generation before where we spend all of our time on the front porch hanging out with our neighbors and getting to know one another and doing music and all the things that we would do together on the front porch, now everybody's on their back porch behind their 10 foot high wooden walls and we don't get to know our neighbors. We don't spend time together. And then the church comes right into the midst of this relationally deficient culture. And we have the opportunity to say, let us show you something better. Amen. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let us show you a more excellent way. It's the way of love. And it's costly. It's going to force you to get out of your shell a little bit. You're going to have to pop that bubble in order to walk this way. You're going to have to endure some holy hugs and handshakes and fist bumps and maybe even a holy kiss or two. I don't know. It's, it's there in the text. You can determine for yourself. But I love what John Piper said. He said, so the lesson here is this. Whatever means of expressing greetings, let them be genuine. Let them be genuine. He said, I think what the apostles want to do is to encourage us to use various culturally appropriate symbols of greeting and to sanctify them and make them holy. So whatever it is for you, I would say whatever you're comfortable with, allow the Holy Spirit to move you a little bit outside that comfort zone. I'm not encouraging you to try to take up the gift of hugging if you're not a good hugger. Please don't do that. It's just going to be awkward. 
But I am saying to you, allow God to move you a little beyond what you're comfortable with. That's the way the Holy Spirit tends to work in our lives. And here's the bottom line. This holy kiss, it was a sign of intimacy and connectedness in the early church. Man, when you walked into those fellowships, most of them were house churches in those days, a smaller group of believers meeting together in a home week by week, even day by day, they would meet together for fellowship and for prayer, for studying the Word of God together. It was more like a, uh, not a church with small groups, but a church of small groups. That was, that was the way the early church looked. And as they were doing life together, those who would come into their fellowship, guess what they found? Man, I can't believe how those folks love each other. I mean, there were some who were selling their possessions to provide for the poor among them. Like Barnabas, he had a few extra acres, and he goes and sells his land, which was a primary means of wealth in those days. Wealth was often measured in how much property you owned. And so he goes and sells off property and brings the money and lays it at the feet of the church leaders to provide for the poor there in Jerusalem. And there were those who were looking on and saying, we've never seen love like this. I mean, nobody sells their land to provide for the poor. You just throw an extra couple of dollars in the offering plate there in the temple to provide for the poor. Nobody actually sacrifices for one another. And look how they're loving the widows, these outcasts of society. That was one of the lowest groups in the culture at that time. Those whose husbands had died and were left childless as widows. These were the lowest of the low. And they said, look how they're taking care of the widows. We've never seen anything like this in the way that they're providing for the widows. And they went on and on about the way they loved one another. It's all because Jesus said, this is how they're going to know you're my disciples. It's not because you can quote a bunch of Bible verses. It's not because you pray lengthy thee thou prayers. It's not because you go to church every Sunday. Or because you wear Jesus t-shirts. Or have Jesus bumper stickers. They will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And it was the love of the early church that radically transformed the Roman Empire, which was the prevailing political unit of the day. And so Jesus said, again, new commandment I give to you, which, by the way, was just an old commandment repackaged. Go back to Leviticus 19, you find the same commandment to love one another, but he gave it to us now with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes the difference. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this will all people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's got to be a visible love, church. It's got to be a love that's manifested in reality, a genuine love that's shown in the way we treat each other, in the way that we talk about one another, not just here in this place, but when we're outside of these walls. How do we speak about our church when we're out in the community? How do we speak about those within our church, especially those that kind of grate on our last nerve? Those are opportunities to love. How do we respond to those who kind of invade our personal space 
and they have that gift of hugging, are we seeing that as an opportunity to worship God together? In all of these things, and from the smallest to the greatest, we find that all of them are opportunities for us to walk in worship. And they're visible. They're unmistakable. And they're all necessary.